David Flaherty, Marketing Director for Washington Wine, and this is Somlight. Somlight is a conversation series where we talk to some of our favorite wine pros from around the country, talk about the shop, but more importantly, find out what makes them human and what makes them tick. I'm super excited to welcome to the show today, Chris Horn. Chris has spent more than 30 years in the restaurant business and is currently the beverage director for the Heavy Restaurant Group based here in Seattle, Washington. He fell in love with wine while bussing tables at an Italian restaurant shortly after college and never looked back. In 2006, he opened Purple Cafe and Wine Bar as wine director, and now in his current role, he writes the wine lists for nine restaurants. Chris received the Walter Clore Award in 2019, is a former Washington State Sommelier of the Year, Seattle Magazine Sommelier of the Year, and co-author of Cook and Cork, a chef and a sommelier, Spill the Secrets of Food and Wine Pairing. Chris, it's awesome to see you. First off, where are you and how are you? I'm, I'm doing all right. I am in uh, my Ballard townhouse in the bedroom. Okay, I got to ask you. So your unofficial title in the restaurant is Director of Liquids. It is my, that's my official title is Director of Liquids. Oh, that's your official title. Okay. That's what's on the business card. Yeah. So you're also a parent. From a parenting perspective, if you're the Director of Liquids, does it make your wife the Director of Solids? You know, she's really good with solids. She's a florist, but she's more of the director of me. So okay. she makes sure everything's everything's running the way it's supposed to. She's in charge. You're, you you kind of need a handler. I imagine that you're kind of one of those guys. Not just a, a handler, but like an emotionally adept person, especially in these troubling times to keep everything safe and sane. So she is your your solid rock. Oh, yeah backing up. I was never going to get married. I was never going to have a mortgage. I was never going to have a child. So it turns out there's exactly one person on the planet that I could have married. And luckily I found her or she found me or we found each other. How how long have you guys been married? It'll be 15 years this January. That's awesome. Congratulations. A long time. So you seem to bring a lot of humor and lightness to your work, kind of embodying the adage, you know, take your wine seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. Where does that stem from for you? And is that a fair thing to say about how you approach your work? Oh, it's, it's totally fair. And I think it's because there's nothing more humbling than the world of wine. There's nothing more humbling than trying to learn a subject with inexhaustible information that every year is another wave of new information and wave of new wineries, new wine regions. There's no way to master this at all, even master a slice of it. And so with, with great humility comes great humor. Like it's a ridiculous idea to try to be a wine expert. It's the dumbest thing to do because you just can't do it. And then also like I learned from people who were, again, that thing about taking wine seriously, but taking not taking yourself seriously. I take service seriously. I take hospitality seriously, but I'm, I'm dispensable. Like I, I'm not that necessary. Anybody could do what I do. So we don't drink wine to get sober. So of course you have fun with it. You have to, it's, there's, there's enough sobering subjects in the world and wine isn't one of them. So yeah, I guess humor is a, a great device to, to hide the fact that you don't know what you're talking about. Do, I mean, does the wine world need more humor? Why are we so damn serious about this? You, you just said it's supposed to bring us joy and happiness, it is. but everyone it is. takes it so damn seriously. You know, I, I kind of want to blame the British and the French, <laughs> but I know that's unfair. Because it, it's we're, we do this, uh, I you know when I think about the term sommelier and what what the sommelier has evolved over the years. Like there used to be a time when 
I first got in the wine that I wouldn't tell people that I was a sommelier because they'd be like, those guys are assholes. Yeah. And I'd yeah. be like, oh, yeah, they are, aren't they? And then, then we sort of entered this period where suddenly being a sommelier was cool. And like, there's a TV show and a movie. And like, we took the sommelier and put him on a pedestal and blah, blah, blah. And I think that's even worse because it's a misunderstanding of what the job is. If you took any job and sliced off the most glamorous part and presented that as that's what the job is, there's all sorts of careers out there that'd be, wow, that's super cushy. Whereas the sommelier, 90% of it is spreadsheets and boxes. Like very, a very small portion is the going to visit wine regions or wineries. A very small portion of it, or should be, is the tasting of wine. It's a restaurant job. And we're not taking the server assistant and making a movie about him and putting him on a pedestal because it's a restaurant job and it's not glamorous. But we've kind of gone through this period where we've glamorized the sommelier. And I guess we do that with most jobs that are French words like chauffeur and maitre d'. No, that's wrong. Like, it's weird what we've done to the sommelier, I think a little bit, because fundamentally it is a, a restaurant job. And I. I think that for our program uh, back in, in, the, in the before times, uh, if you wanted to be on the wine team, you had to be the best waiter on the floor. That was the criteria. If you're not the best waiter on the floor, don't bother trying to be a sommelier because you can't do one before the other. And I, I think that, what was the question again? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm really, I'm really loving what you're saying. And, it, you know, like that, let, let's follow that through because that's really interesting. Like, you know, you've been in the restaurant industry for, I think 30 years, right? And, yeah, and it might be more. All right. But that's that's just like denying the fact that I'm as old as I am. 30 is rounding down in a pretty thorough way. All right, so maybe thinking. there's a little denial in that 30. Maybe it's 50. No, no. But, so here's the thing. I might be having a milestone birthday next year. And pretty soon, I'm going to start telling people that I'm 65 and they're all going to say you look really good for your age <laughs> that's what i'm going to start doing more tactic yeah it's interesting because a lot of the the wine professionals working today and i mean like in the last 10 15 years they didn't see that flip happen that you're talking about talk a little bit more about that like oh, yeah. what was like the early wine people like in the restaurants because you were in seattle at the time right i was, I was in seattle so in the mid 90s i was working at salty's on alki under tim o'brien who uh is still one of the, yeah. the best yeah. dudes on the planet and he i he's responsible for inculcating me with that attitude of like this is fun don't be a snob about it learn your stuff and 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 speak to your tables with knowledge and confidence, but like, don't get over your skis. Mm -hmm. And so back then in the nineties, there weren't sommeliers per se. There were some restaurants that had them, but it wasn't until the early zeros when like the quartermaster started Mm -hmm. testing in Seattle that suddenly people started frothing. And then there was a lot of us that took it super seriously that were studying, going to seminars, blind tasting, all that stuff. That was a great, for me, it was a great learning period. At that time, I started working at Wild Ginger and being a a wine and service captain at the very beginning and being exposed to all sorts of great wines and and private sellers and and helping create a wine list that was a pretty big deal and running around the floor with a bunch of sommeliers. I think what started happening probably around seven, eight years ago 
is that I had some friends on the East Coast that would say, oh, we don't post jobs for sommeliers anymore. We just post jobs for restaurant managers with wine Mm. knowledge. And then that's how they hired their wine directors. Because I think because of some of the engrandizing of the sommelier job in the media, et cetera, is that restaurant operators, restaurant owners, maybe don't value the sommelier because everybody thinks they just pull corks. Whereas a real sommelier is a manager who is there to help with wine service. But because we did this thing over the last decade of engrandizing the job, I think it, it's damaged the job itself. It's made it so that there are restaurant, restaurant uh, owners that don't want sommeliers. They do want managers with wine knowledge, but no, we don't want sommeliers. They're an expensive toy that is yeah. unnecessary. And so until we come up with another term that isn't a French word for wine waiter or wine person, I, didn't we used to call them wine stewards? That's a weird one too. So, yeah. so 80s. <laughs> Yeah, there's, we're sort of in flux, I think, because especially coming out of the pandemic and just the state of restaurants, I remember sitting down with my team at the time years ago saying, hey, if, if you want my job, go get restaurant management jobs, go learn how to be a restaurant manager, because you, you, you will cease to be able to get a sommelier job. You can get a really cool restaurant job, writing the wine list, running the bar and helping manage, but that specialized trait of being a sommelier is in decline in yeah. a big way it, it happened fast like it, it almost seemed like you know like the bell curve of the whole thing was maybe like 10 years it went from like all right you're the manager you get to like play with the liquids mm-hmm. <laughs> like you say which is fun and you get to like learn history sometimes you get some perks like trips and all that and then mm-hmm. it did become yeah. about almost like I guess celebrity it was almost like the the chefs too had been pulled out of the kitchen now all of a sudden they're celebrities and that kind of changes everything but but it did kind of like crest in the last few years and now so many wine certification classes and courses now is really going back to the business of beverage and going like look it's not about your ego and creating a cool wine list anymore you know everyone can pick cool wines let's go back to that because i mean you you know you're, you're being humble about it and saying like Hey, I'm just like a, you know, elevated manager that likes to play with wine. Like, no way, man. Like you're, you're, you know, you're running a, a restaurant groups, beverage programs. Like tell us about that. State the case for why a restaurant today should have somebody with your knowledge on it to bring to the business. Oh, well, that's, that's easy. It's economics. If you have a centralized person purchasing, you have buying power just today. I drove to a restaurant, met with a winemaker, took the 38 cases, put 12 in my Subaru, took it to one restaurant, put the other 12 in the staging area to take to another restaurant. Now, if if we were buying that same wine or a wine like that from all the individual restaurants, we would be paying a whole lot more and maybe getting a less awesome wine. And so you don't only get better quality things when you have one person in charge of purchasing, but you get better economic outcomes. And it's just the the way the game is played. If you buy half a pallet or a pallet, you get a great price. If you buy a case, you get an okay price. If you buy six bottles, it's going to really screw up with your economics. And we do have a lot of small restaurants in the group that certainly can't get an order minimum. So if I have to run a case or two out there, it's a great excuse to say hello to the bar manager or have a sandwich and like 
hang out in that restaurant. And there are benefits to having to disseminate your product throughout the restaurant group. Again, everyone thinks restaurant people live on the floor. And that's like a big part of what you do is you're on the floor selling wine. You're talking to people about wine, but like, you know, with all the tools now that you have to track sales, to track trends in, in the restaurants and all that, like, how do you not get like so deep in the weeds on those tools that they're actually effective? And then how do you like manage your time, like with the people, both your staff and the customers? I, I think there's, it is it, always an ebb and flow and certain times of the month you're really in the spreadsheets and other times of the month you're avoiding the spreadsheets by being on the floor. And I, I think there some of it's in, intuitive, but first and foremost it is the economics. Like I, I need to be able to show that I am running things efficiently and profitably and, and spreadsheets and sales reports and inventory that's all uh, a big giant calculator that gives you the immediate feedback in a, in a percentage or a dollar amount of what you're doing. And it's a fun game. Like it's fun to chase the deals. It's fun to, 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 to buy a lot of a thing. And then the goal I think should be as somebody who writes a wine list is for people to come in, sit down and order wine and not feel like they're getting the short end of the deal. Like you don't, you want to be profitable, but you have to be smart about it and not mark, just mark things up arbitrarily. Like, here's how I mark up my wine. No, that's not how it goes. You, you know where you're getting a better value. So you might be able to mark that up a little bit more. Uh, you know where you're getting something esoteric that only so many people are going to be gravitated towards. And so you price that differently too, to maybe reward the person that wants to have a bottle of Chateau Moussard. So like, yeah, there's no, if there was an easy formula to just plug in the cost of the bottle and spit out how you're going to price it on your wine list, you wouldn't need somebody to massage it. You wouldn't need somebody to be monitoring sales velocities and trying to plug into those high velocity slots, something that is good for the money and shows value. You know, when you go in a restaurant and I know how much we have to mark stuff up these days to survive, to pay rent in a downtown core. But sometimes you stand there and go, really? A five ounce pour for that? Uh, that doesn't feel right. And so I just want to always feel like I am not just vetting the product so that the guest is getting high quality glasses and bottles of wine, but I want to make the economics yeah. be as such that, that I don't feel like I'm ripping them off. And I mean, that's a lot of things to manage, right? I mean, that, that is like re reading the numbers, seeing the trends, seeing the people's response to what you're putting out there. Yeah. Am I right to understand that? Did you, do you have 80 wines by the glass? Well, uh, in the before times, BC <laughs> before COVID, okay. if you count the dessert, in the before times, you count dessert wines, it was over hundred. Over hundred by the glass. Before COVID, we were well over hundred. Wow. It was great because, you know, 15% of our sales, at least at the purples, were flights. And so you were able to program things in a way that you always had velocity. There was no bottle just sitting around oxidizing. Or a lot of those wines we brought in specifically as a food pairing. Like right now, I had this Chianti that was paired with the pesto. And it was very hard to find that Chianti. And they just out of stock me. So like even today, I'm going to be like screaming in the, in the walk-in about thanks for telling me about being out of that. 
So I just programmed it in another restaurant, you jerks. But you know, supply yeah. chain issues. I understand. We're all, you know, it's it's a it's a pandemic. A lot of a lot of times we would buy a wine because it's what we needed for that dish. And because at least in our wine bars, that's that's part of what we do is like we make sure that if you order I don't know, the big brie that there is an off-dry vouvray that's going to make that taste better. And so that that the experience of a wine bar is a little bit a little bit extra as far as being the wine buyer, because you are keeping in mind that that every bottle of wine is a tool in your toolbox. And eventually you need to fix up a, a food and wine pairing and you want to make sure that you have all the tools you need to have that happen. Or you end up chasing down a Sangiovese, yeah. buying a bunch of it and then yeah. being out of stock almost immediately. Wine lists and wine talk can be the most stuffy, intimidating experience for people. You know, like when you get that big wine list handed to you, nobody knows what to do with it. Nobody knows how much time to spend with it. But you you kind of take a different tack with your wine lists and you add some, you know, clever descriptions and fun and all that. Like, talked about that. Like, how do you work against the stuffiness of wine talk with with customers? Right. So- so the way the wine list evolved was in the early days, it was just like a list that like, here's Malbec. And then you said something blurby about what Malbec is, then you just list everything. But then I was adding in the Word document that I was sending out to the staff in the notes, everything I wanted them to know about the wine. Anecdotes, silly things like, oh, the name of the horse that plows the, the yeah. vineyard is named Scarlet, like stupid things, yeah. you know, that, I, that they were part of the story of wine. And eventually I was like, why don't I just put that in the wine list? And so that's when the wine list kind of became a wine book in a way. And that that I tried to have, especially for anything we sold by the glass, that there was either a story or a set of sentences or words that gave like a mood that kind of isn't like the blurb on the back of the bottle, which is always like, don't get me started on that. But sort of like when you were at the record store, when we had record stores, oh my God, I'm ancient that when you saw like the the staff favorites, they'd like tell you why they thought this album was cool or this album was a collaboration between this lead singer from this band and this guitarist from that band. You'd be like, oh, I like those bands. I might like this, this CD. So like you want to give people a reason to be positive about their choices because if you're just looking at a, a list of wines and you're like, okay, I'm affording that bottle. I will have that. There's no, there's nobody saying, hey, that's not that's you're not looking for that what you're looking for is over here or somebody saying hey that's a great idea this bottle is awesome uh it's made by human beings and uh they live in the vineyard so they farm a certain way because they live where they farm and so including all that on a wine list i think is is a great service especially in a busy wine bar when you don't have the opportunity to talk to every table and also like at the bar, you know, we have a lot of bar seating and we have a lot of travelers coming in from out of town. Instead of sitting on their, their cell phones, just reading the, the or doom scrolling the news, they could actually open the wine book and read the wine book and like sip a glass of wine and then decide what the next one is because they've, it's something caught their eye. And so building a wine list uh, with, with uh, stop signs and speed bumps is a great way to lead people to certain things, but also affirm their decisions and use some words that that resonate with them. If you're talking about a Chardonnay that's slutty and voluptuous, I'm not sure if that's great wine talk, but I would do that. And then people would be like, that's what I'm in the mood for. But if they're looking for something racy and intense, then here's some Chablis. Again, 
the average person just looking at a wine list and looking at the Chardonnay section, the difference between Chablis and Marceau is amazing. And yet it could be the same price on the same page with no information for them to make the right decision. So I just try to, to put in a lot of a lot of things to help people out. I miss the before times wine lists, <laughs> the, the big giant tome. It was like I, it was 130 odd pages or something, but but it was it was useful tool to teach the staff. Uh, right now we're doing the QR code menus and it's not quite as I don't have the the ability to fill it in quite as much because you don't want somebody just scrolling for hours to get to the last page of the wine list. So I actually hand out the old wine list to people that, that want to learn about the wine list. So it's kind of both things going on right now. Where do you go for your inspiration, you know, in, in terms of this regard? Like, how do you keep things fresh? Uh, Where do you look for inspiration? Or like, how do you keep that well filled with all that you're doing? I have a folder that's other people's wine lists. And so you just, just looking at your favorite restaurants, places you've been, restaurants around the world. Uh, if you sometimes you can Google just the name of a wine that you love. And if you go to like page six or seven or eight, you'll stop getting the, the like wine stores trying to sell you that wine, but you will you'll start getting hits on people's wine lists. And so if you're looking at other people's wine lists, it's a great way to remind you of some wines that you forgot about even like, oh my God, I, I forgot that I love that wine. I, where, where was I buying that back in 2008? And then you seek out that wine, you bring it back. Looking at old, old wine lists that you wrote are also pretty informative because mm you find out just how crappy your first wine lists were <laughs> and uh, how many typos are on that wine list from just a few years ago. And then it's going to wine stores too. Like uh, we have so many great retailers in Seattle that you could walk into a number of joints and browse for a second and go like, oh, okay, th these wines are curated by a human being that I would love to have beers with because we like some of the same things. And here's some stuff that I've never seen before. So you take out your iPhone and take a few pictures or you buy a few bottles and bring them home. It's really hard not to be inspired in the world of wine because there's so much cool stuff going on all the time. And because I'm programming wine in a few different places that have different personalities, it also allows me to be a little, a little different in say the wine store we have in Wallingford, as opposed to the wine that I buy for downtown Seattle. Cause in Wallingford, I'm buying more natural wines. I'm playing a lot with uh, lower price point things and trying to find cool stuff that I can sell for 17 bucks a bottle. That is really damn good. Well, at the same time, not cannibalizing what I might be serving somewhere else by the glass. So, like I'm lucky that, that I have a lot of outlets to sell things. And so I need to be constantly inspired by new stuff or I would run out of stuff to buy. Do you feel like that's the same for you, like outside of wine and outside of restaurants? Like, are you, are you the type of person who's like always looking for inspiration and like energy from art or music? Like, mm. what, what, does that kind of carry over to your outside life as well? I am a failed writer. <laughs> <laughs> there was a time that I was going to be the next great American novelist until I found out that I kind of sucked at that. Had a good time trying. So I still kind of look at the world sometimes with that writer's eye, which is like a little bit different than just existing. But like I play the guitar almost every night when I get home. And a lot of times it's just hitting shuffle on your enormous iTunes library, which is uh, an amalgamation of not only what your wife's listening to, but what your kid's listening to. And suddenly you're like, playing your guitar along with some weird band that you've never heard before. And I do a lot of cooking. If I'm not in a restaurant, I'm in my kitchen and, and we have a cookbook collection that's obscene, 
and we still buy more. And so I'm constantly inspired by making new things and trying to figure out what wine am I going to open with this particular dinner we're having tonight. So I sort of live in my house like I do in the restaurant, which is that I want to eat good things and drink the right thing with it. And I want to watch cool TV with my kid and I want to play the guitar. And like, so I mean, I, I, there's inspiration everywhere. How do you find time for that? I mean, again, it's like, I don't know, man, I'm constantly like trying to figure this out with people like yourself who are like so busy and you have so many responsibilities. Your email inbox is like a mess. I'm sure your text messages are constantly going off. Like you could be working all the time, right? Like you're one of those people. Have you learned that separation between work and life? And are you good at it? How have you kind of learned to, to like church and state those two worlds right or, or do you just constantly get lost in the the churn of it all you know in the before times i was really lucky that my roommates would fall asleep and i could get back to working after they've fallen asleep so like it was unhealthy that i was adding a lot of work between the hours of 10 o'clock and two o'clock in the morning but they were asleep so i wasn't taking away from my time with them and then when the pandemic hit i think we all sort of had that like I was out of work for what, six, seven weeks. And during that time, I, I wasn't in a restaurant till 4am three nights a week, or I wasn't waiting for my, my family to fall asleep so I could get back to working on the wine list. I, I like, there was a little bit of a, a reset button and we all said, we're never going back the way it was. <laughs> like, you know, it, yeah. Is that possible? The problem is we're going back to where restaurants are hard to staff and we can't be open for as many days as we'd like because we just can't find enough staff. And you're having to do a whole lot more than before in a lot of ways. There's some nights when I'm just washing glassware for hours on end because somebody has to wash the glassware and everybody's busy. And so I think that we're still in the middle of the trauma of this pandemic. We're still in the middle of the event. And so trying to predict how it will be when we come out of it is, is difficult. I would like to think that that, that work-life balance that is the biggest joke word <laughs> ever, that I'm better at it now than before, but I'm certainly not winning. I mean, there certainly are, there are days when, when you are too tired to really be present and that sucks. You're just exhausted again. What was the question? Am I terrible at it? <laughs> yeah. Restaurant work is hard. Yeah. And since we're still in the middle of this, this craziness, it's hard for me to, to say anything definitive about what's going on. Besides, we're all doing our best and we're all trying really hard to uh, make good experiences for our guests. But nothing's normal yet. Everything's yeah. still super weird. There's a, a couple of feedback loops that we in the restaurant need. And one of those is smiling at somebody and having them smile back. And I, I noticed this. I, I did a, a retreat with a, a travel company. My wife and I uh, were in, in Provence for a, a week and a half. And all the guests were vaccinated. We're all vaccinated. So for the first time in like 19 months, I'm serving a table and pouring wine and smiling at people. And they're smiling back at me. And I totally forgot that that's part of what makes you want to be in a restaurant is that sort of reptile brain response when you get to mirror some joy. I mean, I can smize with my eyes all I want, but it's not quite the same <laughs> as smiling at a human and having them smile back. So 
I think we're trying our best in restaurants right now just to, to make it good for our guests and make it as good as we can for our employees as well. But it's it's super fun right now. I think I know it can be and should be again someday. But there's the other thing too. Like if I was a younger guy, say I was back in my 20s uh, waiting tables and making a ton of money. But part of the fun of that job was that we'd go out after work and hang out with everybody and drink beers and sip on scotch until two o'clock in the morning and we go home. That's not happening anymore. So like the, the sort of family that sometimes is created after hours at restaurants isn't happening because everybody's getting done with work and going home. Cause there's no going to the bar after work right now. Cause there's not a lot of bars open. Some of the things that made restaurant culture so appealing aren't there right now. And that's uh, I think contributing to the fact that there's people that are leaving and not coming back for the foreseeable future. Because if I can, you know, do drywall for the same amount of money as I can wait in tables. At least I'm having to not do the thing I really want to do, which is show hospitality and reciprocate joy and foment a good night, you know? And I think that, that a lot of diners are not super comfortable either yet. We're a ways from being normal and we're a ways from restaurants being what they're supposed to be. I hope that when we do go back to normal, though, that we, we do find that we need to give ourselves more time and we need to allow ourselves to be okay with not finishing your to-do list and it's hard it's really hard to teach yourself that like it's okay to not answer that email it's okay to not answer those text messages people will send another one if it's urgent and um it's okay if you if you want to maybe just like run out of that cabernet this weekend and just have one cabernet by the glass because you forgot to order it because I did 12 <laughs> bottles. It's not going to last till Sunday, but you know, whatever. Yeah. I have to be okay with it because no, the old me would be right now scrambling to maybe just ask a distributor, can I stop by the warehouse and pick up a couple cases of Cabernet to get me through the weekend? Nah, it's all right. I've got plenty yeah. of wine. Now, restaurants are always breeding grounds for the wine professional of right. tomorrow. You know, they could be a busser on your staff or maybe like a server that's just there to like make a paycheck, you know, do a job that's kind of fun that supports them to do something else. But have you gotten pretty good over the years at like seeing that person that's like particularly their ears go up when you're doing a wine education class or something like that? They're just ready to be inspired. Like how do you seek those people out and get them activated you know it's hard because i've just been i feel like i've been super lucky just to have been at the right place at the right time in a lot of my career and just meeting the right humans i think if you set out to like attract certain kinds of humans that would be a mistake when i think about what my wine team consisted of when we closed in march of 2019 if I put all those people in a room together, it's a weird group. Everybody's super different. And yet, when we went on trips together, when we hung out, everybody had a great time. But could I have predicted that this group of people would be so amazing? No. And if I had on purpose tried to put the, you know, the Justice League together, I think I would fail miserably. I, I think all you can do as somebody in this business is, is try to be generous with your time when you're asked for it and try to be open to sharing what you know, sharing bottles that you love, 
being excited about a thing and then allowing other people to be excited as well. Like if I'm not super psyched about this wine that I'm showing the, the group, okay, um, it's a Bordeaux blend, it's got Cabernet. Like if I'm not like, holy shit, this is dope. Okay, it's a single block. It's got every Bordeaux varietal planted in it. And like the plan was like do harvest all at the same time, but they can never do it because Merlot's always like three weeks before Cabernet, blah, blah, blah. If you don't like love the thing that you're presenting, you don't let other people fall in love with it too. Admittedly, I fall in and out of love with wine probably once or twice a year. And usually needs to, I need a touchstone experience. I need to like have that bottle with that dish. I have to be reminded why wine is magical because it's your job. And sometimes your, your job is not always Harry Potter and, and David Copperfield. Is that the name of that guy? I should have gone with David Blaine. David Blaine would have been a better one. He's the cooler yeah. magician. And there's a, what's yeah. the guy that always wore black? I don't know. Anyway, like, like wine is magical. It's fucking magical. And yet yeah. it's, if you're around it all the time and it's your job, it's really easy for it to lose a little bit of its magic. I think your question was, how have I been so lucky to have so many awesome people come through my life as a, as a restaurant professional? I don't know, man. I just think it's lucky as hell because I feel like I'm the lucky one in that uh, algebra of, of, of life energy. I've, I've had more joy from the people I've worked with than I'm sure they've had for me because I'm always the one telling them what to do. But yeah, who are the restaurant professionals tomorrow? I don't know. But when I think about my story and I think about the stories of, of people that I know and love, a lot of it had to do with the right bottle and the right food at the right time. And so mm. like for me, I can't separate wine from food and have it be amazing. Like there are a few wines that I've just sat and drank a whole bottle of and been like, wow, that was amazing. But there's been so many mm. times when I've, open an amazing bottle and it only becomes more amazing because I'm eating the right thing with it. Give us an example of that, that maybe didn't happen in a restaurant. You mean personally? Oh I, yeah. You know, there. like, I don't want to ask you like your seminal <laughs> food and wine, food and wine pairing during moment. Maybe you have that like ready to roll. There, there's a, there's a bunch. So when I think about like, this is probably like 12 years ago, I had a bunch of the chefs over in the backyard and I sense we were just going to like shuck oysters and drink beer. But then I was like, Oh, I should, I should open some, some badass Chablis, awesome Muscadet. And we we're just yeah. in the backyard, like slurping oysters, like pouring the Chablis into the shell and just pie holing it and seeing my chefs kind of lose their minds a little bit, but also lose my mind as well, because there's something amazing when you, you pour, a wine that grew in the soil that's littered with fossilized shells of the thing you're eating. Like there's this weird Hakuna Matata thing that happens. And like, I love it. And so, yeah, if I ever, if I'm ever deep in the, the wine funk, I will just get some oysters and get some, some badass Chablis and remind myself that like, it's being magic. But then like, it happens often in the restaurants because there's nothing, there's no wine pairing that we publish that we haven't vetted. It's all because when we first opened downtown, you know, you're opening a restaurant and it's busy. You don't have all the wines you want to have. The chef doesn't have their stuff together. 
And so then the GM's like, oh, we need the wine pairings for the menu. And you're like, oh, I'm a sommelier. I'm smart. I'll just guess. But guessing should always be the first step in wine pairing, not the last one. And so I've told the story a bazillion times to everybody that's heard that within earshot that I created the world's worst food and wine pairing ever. It was awful. It was it took this beautiful Spanish white anchovy tapas and turned it into like rotten flesh. It was the grossest thing that's actually ever happened in a restaurant. I can't really prove that, but I'm, I'm I know it's true. So for me, we're, we're constantly pairing food and wine. What, 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 wait, what was the wine? What was the, what was the wine that you picked? It was this, it, so in my brain, you had the salty, oily Spanish anchovy. And then I had this 2005 Chenin Blanc from South Africa. I won't throw the producer under the bus. Uh, and I was like, oh, that wine kind of has an oiliness too. And it's got a little bit of residual sugar to deal with the saltiness of that fish. Oh my God, I'm a genius. And then the GM at the time was like, hey, uh, have you had the, the pairing of that, those two things? I was like, no, man, I'm sure it's great because I'm, again, I'm a sommelier. <laughs> and he's like, no, you should try that after work tonight. And so yeah. I did. And it was terrible. <laughs> I was at the end of the bar and, and I... Eating it like one tear just rolled down your face of shame. No, it's like I can still taste the sadness in my mouth, the the regret, failure. I know what that failure tastes like. If we say that this goes with this, it's because we've paired it with one of the chefs or more than one mouth has been involved. Because the worst thing that could happen is I think what's happened to the world of food and wine pairing, which is every bottle of wine says goes great with Asian food, steak and raw tuna. Like the stuff they put is pairs well, or you're walking through the grocery store and the PA system says it goes well with every occasion. Like every, every food and wine pairing that, that people have been exposed to has probably been marketing or been a guess and been, wrong and everyone's so scared to get it wrong that they're just going to follow whatever advice comes their way and so we as americans don't play with our wine the way we should play with our wine we should we should have wine around the house all the time so that when we're making a dish and we want to pop open something think about it for a second what's going to go what's going to go with this 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 chicken with rosemary and garlic and sage i'm probably not going to open that uruguayan tanat you know, I'm, I'm going to grab something that might have some bridges. I might grab some might burgundy because I'm going to slather some butter on there, too. Like if you start thinking about the cl- collision of food and wine and how you can take two flavors that are decent, but create something even better just because they're introduced to one another. I, I think the world would be a better place. Like the, the, the fact that we don't approach pairing our food the way we pair our chocolate cake is a crime. Mm-hmm because we always pair our chocolate cake with milk. We never try to pair it with apple juice or orange juice. That's terrible. Everybody knows it's terrible, but we will pair our, our salad with Cabernet. Did you grow up in a, in a household as a kid that this was part of your family experience? No, my, my parents, my dad was into Asian cooking. He used to take classes at the Wajmaya. We lived in, in Japan, Hong Kong, and the Philippines for a while when I was growing up. And so he was sort of a force of like bringing in cool flavors. My mom cooked like uh, anybody that grew up in Canada in the, the 50s. You know, at dinner, there was always wine at dinner, but it was probably Mountain Chablis in a, in a big jug. Dad drank rum and Cokes. I don't know. So my first job was working at a country club as a busboy. And there was a little, and this is back in the 80s. And so 
there was like this thing. I, I could remember the. It's not that long ago, Chris. Oh my God. Oh, it that is. baby. Oh, it is a long time ago. But I can remember like the, the certain guests, like oh, Willie Akins used to sit on table 13 with his wife every Friday and they had a bottle of Pui Fousse. So like the people that, that cared about food and wine that I noticed early on when I was busting tables, I didn't understand it. I just knew that they were cool people and I want to be just like him or the Bennett's that always drank frog's leap Chardonnay. Like, like the people that I saw that were enjoying wine more than just like slugging it back with whatever they were eating. Like I knew there was something going on there, but it wasn't until I experienced it for myself that I was like, Oh, wine can be something entirely different than what I thought it was supposed to be, which was up until that point, a basic inebriant that was easy to keep on hand because none of your roommates would steal your Carlo Rossi Hardy Burgundy. They'd steal your Miller Lite, but they would never steal your jugs of wine. So yeah, I just, I think that there's just a vast majority of the wine drinking public that has not been introduced to food and wine pairing as something you can do and you should do all the time because why wouldn't you? If you can just make everything taste better because you made the right choice or tried to make the right choice, because if you make the wrong choice, you should learn from that. And so if, if we paid attention to that just a little bit more, then you might see a, a, a diversity of purchasing in America besides what 93% of all wine is, which is like something made by a giant corporation. I mean, it seems like, you know, everyone's fighting for this. You know, there's a lot of talk about living in the moment and... Mm -hmm awareness of the now and it, it's almost like for me like when you do take the time to really taste your food mm -hmm. and really like taste your wine and go like how how much can i actually taste <laughs> like, right. how deep does this sense go and then when you put them together you know it, it's almost like there's no greater way for time to stop right there's no greater way to be sort of like present mm -hmm. than when you're when you're enjoying something and like i that. think that we do that with food already like I, I think that if i said hamburger or cheeseburger you get you have this little card catalog in your brain of like all the best cheeseburgers you ever had and when you're eating a cheeseburger you're kind of comparing that to all the ones you've had before or the ones that you had last week when you took your kid to dick's for a deluxe like you we do that a lot with food already we don't do that with wine. We just like, oh, we like, we like that grape. We don't go, oh, we like that producer from that vintage or we like that grape in that area. Like we, we, we don't take that step of like understanding exactly why we like a thing. And also, again, this is just human nature because there's so much pressure in wine to like get it right. Yeah. That the automatic response is to be negative about things. Because if you want to feel like an expert, just say that band sucks or that restaurant sucks, right? If you want right. to feel like you know what you're talking about, that's a, that's a great point. have a negative yeah. opinion. And so people yeah. start to shut themselves off from certain parts of the wine world because they'll say stuff like, oh, I don't like California wine or I don't drink Pinot Noir. And you're like, what the, what happened to you? Who hurt you? And so mm -hmm. I, I think if we drank wine with an open mind, and with our record button pressed and understood or even wrote down. I mean, I remember when I was first getting into wine and I didn't have any money. So it's busting tables. I was like keeping a, a ledger of all the $10 bottles of wine I could buy at the Safeway that tasted good. 
Yeah. Like it's a hilarious list now to look at, but like, <laughs> I, I think that, yeah. that if adults started to be uh, a little bit more mindful about where the wine comes from has a lot to do with, I mean, I'm still shocked that there aren't ingredients listed on the bottle of wine. I'm shocked by it. It's the only thing we ingest without knowing actually what's in it. And we know there's all sorts of reasons not to do that. You don't want to put mega purple in your ingredient list. Like there's, you don't want to add water to your ingredient list, but like these things happen. And, and again, we're, we ingest wine without caring what's inside the bottle or really yeah. wanting to record the experience of it either. And I don't know. Right. I mean, it's weird. It's, you're right. It's like you could ask the average person something like ubiquitous, like, you know, who has the best cheeseburger? And they'll have incredible opinions. Oh, yeah. They'll have a lot of like language to describe it. Like, well, I like the Dick's cheeseburger because that's the lowbrow cheeseburger. And it's like, you know, the seasoned patty, this, this, and this. And they actually have a, like a pretty great internal encyclopedia on why they like it and it's but then it's like i don't know man it's like why have we made this this freaking beverage grape juice so complicated that people they don't they don't even think they have access to to like dare say what they taste in the wine they're like i don't even know what words to use like how the hell did that happen well i think that that access and status were early on part of the wine world like yeah you have to have yeah. a certain you have to make a certain amount of money to put dom perignon on your table yes and no i mean but but like yes you're absolutely yeah. right but at the same time like in cultures like italy it wine was on the table everybody had it on the table it wasn't this like luxury product like how the hell did that happen i i just think that food cuisine and wine grew up together in europe wine is new here it's still pretty been in the ground since the 60s in the northwest i mean there are i know there was stuff earlier on but like as far as the continuously yeah, uh farmed vineyards it, it's only been since the 60s and and i think that that part of uh, wine is selling it and so if you sprinkle some status on your wine brand you might be able to charge a little more for it right? yeah because there are a lot of wineries that start off like we're going to be a $15 bottle of wine that everybody's going to love. And we're going to, we're going to farm it organically. And we're going to, we're going to put it in a cheap bottle with a yeah. forget corks. We're going to do like, there's people aren't approaching it that way because there's already commodity wines being pumped out of the central coast of California. So how do you compete with Franzia? You know, how do you compete with these giant vineyards that are measured in miles, not acres? It's hard. And so because the business of wine in America and the fact that cuisine did not grow up here, there aren't as many like natural experiences like going to Piedmont and having the weirdest dish on the planet, which is Vitello Tonato, which is veal and tuna on the same plate and uh, drinking uh, a dolcetta and going, wait, this is actually a great experience. Ties it all together. Yeah. Whereas yeah. like there are, I guess there are some pantly Northwest things like grilled salmon and pinot noir or crab and chardonnay but i don't know if we invented that you know what i mean that might have happened before so yeah i just think that maybe in 200 years the cuisine will change like it always does wine will take its take its root uh, more thoroughly in people's lives and perhaps there will be generations from now people that will be like oh i'm having this lemberger 
because I'm doing this, this veggie burger. Sounds good to me. So yeah, I just think that because it's not naturally part of our cadence of consumption, we sort of have to force it on each other. Like, hey, yeah, how about you put down the Cabernet with the shrimp and do this Sauvignon Blanc? <laughs> um, yeah, but also at the same time, like, hey, man, if you want to, if you want to drink Cabernet with your shrimp, rock on, right? It's I, like it yeah. is a, it is that balance. There is that sommelier thing that we say it all the time. Hey, if you love the wine and you love the food, you know, go for it. Who cares? I say it all the time and I mean it, yeah. but I will also slide a little Chardonnay next to your crab cake if you're having Malbec with it, because I want you to also know that there's something else you could be doing. See, that's a great way to do Just, it. Yeah. Sneak it in there. And I affirm their choice, affirm yeah. that they have the right to do whatever they want and they can do it, but then also present in a soft way. Like here's another option. Just give it a shot. And we empower all our waiters to do that all the time. That's great. And you don't charge people for those those tastes no because because if we didn't sometimes we'd have to comp the malbec because it tastes terrible right <laughs> or the crab is off every time we go to comp a crab cake it's because something was going on the table next to the crab cake it's not gonna make it taste good <laughs> not a lot of red wines yeah. and crab cake pairings out there for a reason indeed yeah. all right i have some rapid fire questions all right okay there are two types of people in life mm -hmm. Those who use toothpicks and those who don't. Right. What team are you on? I'm a no toothpick guy. You know why? Because Sylvester Sloan ruined it. He looked like such a jerk in that one. Cobra was that movie where he's like, oh, I had the toothpick out. <laughs> you look so dumb. So then when you leave a meal and you have stuff in your teeth. Oh, I do the little picks, you know, the little thingy things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, okay. Uh, yeah. I, you have another implement. Yes. That's not a toothpick. More refined than a toothpick. Yeah. Part of it is that, you know, I go to the dentist every three months because of all the wine tasting. Yeah. And if I'm not like diligent about cleaning things. It's not as fun a trip to the dentist. You know what I mean? Do you have like a in-pocket oh, yeah. dental kit? Yes, I, I carry my equip everywhere I go. <laughs> Maybe shouldn't plug those guys. They're not sponsoring the podcast yet, are they? Yeah, well, you know. Like, Maybe they should start right now. This show moves markets. <laughs> have you ever gotten a pedicure? Yes. Just had one. That was so good. One. Yeah. Oh, great. I got my first pedicure in New York in 2004. And it changed my life. And if I could get a pedicure every week, I would, I would do so. It was the first pedicure of the pandemic. I finally broke down. Do you care more about your fingernails or your toenails? Oh, it's, it's all feet. Yeah. My fingernails are, are a mess. Yeah. yeah. Is the manicure more about the manipulation of the foot as opposed to the care of the toenails? No, I think it's both. I think it's both. But man, like, so there's the fancy pedicure and that's the one I did this last time, but then there's the not fancy pedicure at uh, the base of Queen Anne where you can pay 15 bucks and get the extra 10 minutes of massage. That's what you do. Like, it's just like we're hell on our feet. You know what I mean? If you could sit down and like enjoy a professional smacking your feet and making them feel better. Yeah. I'm all for it. I think people that don't do pedicures are not living their best life. I like that. <laughs> We had a pedicure now, man. It's been too long. You've swayed me. Outside of like email apps and weather apps and all that, what's the app that you use the most? Oh, or look at the most? It's probably the news app. It's terrible. I still like Doom Scroll. That's the Apple News app. Yeah, yeah. it's terrible. But you know, I, I listen to a ton of podcasts, so I think that if I turn on my phone and went to that page that tells you your usage. It might show me that I use the, the podcast app the most. Okay, that's fair. Have you thought about removing yeah. the news app since you seem to have a love-hate relationship with it? No, I can stop anytime. <laughs> I don't buy it. I can stop if I want. I don't either. <laughs>
I don't know. I, yeah, I, I guess I, I could probably take back some hours of my life if I just gave up reading. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've actually like deleted and then re-added yeah. Twitter. That's a such an evil. evil I've app. not I've not fallen down that that Twitterverse yet. It's on my phone right now, but it was yeah. off last week. Adam. Are you a napper? No, what? but I can sleep anywhere, anytime. Does that make sense? Like if you ask me to fall asleep right now, I could do it pretty well. <laughs> fall asleep right now, Chris. Well, I'm standing up. That would be, it would be weird. You're standing I, up right I, now? Yeah. Oh, are you standing, at a standing up desk? And I'm, I'm standing, standing up is a natural position in the restaurant business. Sitting oh. down is weird, yeah. You're like, I eat my meal standing up. I yeah. do my, 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 my interview is standing up. Yeah, yeah. Okay, if you were to write the book, Chris Horn's tips to time management. What would some of those be? Oh, oh gosh. Efficiency is like the number one thing that I try to teach waiters. When you train somebody to do a job, you point out that if you get fast on, say, the POS, you're going to save yourself a ton of time. So efficiency is the thing. And part of efficiency is avoiding multitasking. Just don't have all the things open, like turn off your outlook. If you're going to work on inventory, turn off the wine list. If you're going to look at emails, like try to not have everything open because you so easily will be like suddenly, Oh, but I forgot. I'm supposed to find a Chianti to pair with the pesto. So you got to stay in your grooves. Like don't jump from groove to groove. It's inefficient Just stay, stay in your groove. And also try not to work for more than like an hour at a time. Some people say 40 minutes, some people say 20, but like, yeah, just let an hour be like that natural pause of like, okay, I'm going to go walk around or go get a cup of coffee or go get a glass of water. Just like hit the pause button. Cause there is that diminishing returns. If you just keep powering through and I don't take this advice, but like, I think you lose efficiency after being at work for 12 hours. I do it all the time. So I can't really say that that's my advice. You know what? I can give advice and not take it. Yeah, work eight hours a day. Don't work 12 hours a day. You, you got to write the book, man. It's, it's yeah, your book. I don't I've got a, a friend, Matt Stinton, who is a restaurant manager. He told me one time when he was helping me try to figure out, you know, how to like be efficient in the restaurant. Be aware of how many steps you're taking. And it's haunted me to this day. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I still, like if I'm making dinner and I'm like moving things from the kitchen to the to the table. I'm thinking about like, how can I do this in the least amount of steps? Like, how many things can I carry now? Let me take a moment to think ahead. It's haunted me. And I think about it all the time. Like, how many steps am I taking? And some people can do that without, like some of the best waiters I've worked with don't look like they're hustling, but they're they are getting it done because there is no wasted movement. Oh yeah, man. If you, if you, you know, as a waiter, that, that, that's where you learn it. And that's where you die too, as a waiter. Right. It's like, if you're like, somebody's like, I need ketchup. You're like, cool. I'm going to run and get that ketchup and bring it back. And then you're going to get that next thing. What do they need? They need their food. I'm going to run and get it back. I'm like, no, you need to sweep around, get what does everybody need? Get that list, then go to the back, get all those things and bring them out. That's the hardest thing to do though. It is so hard. And what I try to tell waiters is at the beginning of the night, once you get your section assigned, walk through it once and always walk through it the exact same way, whether or not there's people at the tables or not. If you are always walking through your section the same way all night long, collecting information the entire time in the exact same order, and you'll never be surprised by anything. Oh, that's awesome. But it's really hard to do. It's really hard to do. I'm going to start doing that in my house now. Yeah. Walk through your Why is David going over there again? Why does he stop every time he comes to the corner of the dining room and sweeps his head like this and then moves on? Have you 
taken any online classes recently? Oh, well, yeah, we've done some cooking things and they're fun. Like did a, a barbecue class, like made three different kinds of barbecue sauces. And so, yeah, we've, we've done that. I know I tried teaching some Zoom classes early on in the pandemic, and I found that I don't think I'm great at it because everybody's muted. And yeah. so if you're like doing your thing and you say something you think is funny, you're not hearing laughter. You're just looking at blank screens of like people might be going zero feedback. But, like you, yeah. know, you work in a feedback industry and all of a sudden it's zero feedback. Right. So I, I, I demurred on the Zoom classes because it's you just have to tell yourself when you're doing those like I'm really funny. Like, I'm this it. joke is really <laughs> funny and just like believe yeah. it, which is the hardest part of it. You wrote a book, Cook and Cork. Mm-hmm. If somebody else in the beverage world is considering writing a book, you probably learned a lot when you wrote your book. What advice would you give them that they would might want to know before they write their own book? When Chef and I first started writing a book together, it was going to be super dumb and boring and dull and very academic. But we're smart people. So we're writing a real smart book about food and wine pairing, blah, blah, blah. When we actually started the project for real, when we had a project manager and we had deadlines and suddenly we had this structure ahead of us, what changed everything was sitting in the backyard with a bunch of beers and a grill and some proteins and a stack of three by five cards and some Sharpies and some thumbtacks. We spent the weekend saying, if we could get on a soapbox and tell people what we think they should know about food and wine and pairing them, what would that be? You have one chance to say everything that you want to say. Mm. A lot of it got edited out, of course, especially the curse words. But I would say the advice is get all out on the table. Don't save anything for the next book. Mm. So it might not be one. And really think of it as your opportunity to tell the world what you want them to hear, what you truly believe and what you, you've dedicated your life to. Did you guys take a picture of that? Or, yeah, actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Did you bring your pen and piece of paper? Oh, no, David. I forgot. Yeah, there it is. Even on the clipboard. You're ready. I, I'm going to be standing up. I was going to say you're standing up. I was going, is there an easel? Like, do you have it already ready? Man, I totally blew it. I should have you easel. Should have had an easel. Like, like the, that would have been, yeah, like get out the beret. Uh-huh. Okay. Chris Horn, we're going to do the Psalm Light Drawing Challenge. Wait, first, do I do it this way or this way? Which way? How do you like Artist it? Artist choice. Okay. Artist I'm choice. Do it. Uh, thank you for asking, though. Portrait or Landscape or portrait. Um, great yeah. question to ask. We're going to ask you about the wines of New Zealand. So you have 45 seconds to give us a masterclass on the wines of New Zealand while drawing the oysters and the muscadet that inspired you about food and wine pairing. Okay. Are you ready? Sure. Are you, have you already started, which is cheating? <laughs> Excellent. Begin now, sir. All right. Well, you know, there are few stories in the wine world as interesting as what New Zealand did to Sauvignon Blanc. When you think about all the great wines of the world, they're trying to do what? They're trying to be France. Anybody that makes Pinot Noir wants to be Burgundy. Anybody who makes sparkling wine wants to be Champagne. And there was a time when if you wanted to make Sauvignon Blanc, you wanted to make Sancerre or Puy Fumé. In fact, we named we made up a, a, a name in California, uh, Fumé Blanc, because we we're trying to annex that connotation of the best Sauvignon Blanc in the world comes from Puy Fumé. But then New Zealand comes along. And how did they do it? They created this, uh, this demand and this experience that like on the paper, that's 45 seconds. 
because I didn't even get the clock on live. You were you were maintaining eye contact. Some, I mean, you were really teaching. Some master class. Let's see it. You got to come closer. Come closer. The oyster looks more like a bowl of soup. All right, it's starting to come in. And, hold it there. Hold it there. Okay. Wow, that's uh oh wow. So you're actually pouring. Yeah. It was an action shot. You're pouring the yeah. wine in the oyster as yeah. you as you said. Yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of looks like a sewer pipe going into like an industrial. Uh, or it's, a, it's like a paella pan being uh, dosed with gasoline. Yeah. I don't know. Either way, I'm no artist. But that was, a, I liked what you said about New Zealand, though, Sauvignon Blanc. So, yeah, they annexed Sauvignon Blanc from the, like, there are very few examples of, of the best example of a thing outside of Tempranillo, outside of Nebbiolo, that you don't go to France to get the best in the world. Yeah. The best Sauvignon Blanc in the world, at least to a lot of people, is New Zealand. I like that. Great wine yeah. lesson. Pretty good drawing. Uh, you know, not my forte. Yeah. Last question. So, you know, in your 30 years, as you grew up in the restaurant industry and you found your own voice, you also have been tracking the Washington wine industry. Oh, yeah. You, know, we, you, you saw us. We were probably, I don't know, 40, 50 producers. And now we're over a thousand. Indeed. You know a lot about Washington wine. You know a lot of the people. If you go to a table and somebody is skeptical and doesn't know much about this region, like, what are your go-to excitement points that are real for you about this industry? Here's something that I think helps sometimes is that when I encounter somebody who's like, oh, I don't like Washington wines, I can say, you know, at one point I had some pretty negative opinions as well. Like if you put me in a time machine, send me back 20 years, I said stupid shit like, oh, Washington wine doesn't age, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Because that's the kind of things that people around me would say. And like, that's how you learn is like some real smart person says some bullshit and then it becomes part of your thing too. And so it was about 10 years ago when I realized that some of the things that you know, maybe it was, it was when we first opened downtown, that was what, 15 years ago when I started to realize, Oh, I really don't know what I'm talking about. And so I started to try to, to collect older Washington wine. I still do. Like if somebody's got a library, I'd be like, can I get some oh sevens, some oh fives maybe? Cause those wines are amazing. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to see how 2011 tastes in another 10 years. You know, everything that I thought I knew about wine 20 years ago is kind of crap now. I think that when I tell people about Washington wine is the exciting thing is that it is different today than it was last year. It's miles from where it was 10 years ago. It doesn't even look the same as when I started studying, which again, there was 55 wineries in the state. And so I can't claim to not like a thing because I haven't had all the things. My kid says sometimes that he doesn't like cheese. And my answer is you've not had all the cheese yet. Until you have all the cheese, you cannot say that you don't like cheese. And so some people are like, well, I'm really not into Washington wines. It's easy to say, you know, at one time, I didn't like gin either. And now I drink a lot of it. So let's, let's talk about what you do like in wine. And I guarantee whatever kind of wine in the world you like, something similar is being made in Washington. Like if you think about the wines made in the Gorge versus the wines made on Red Mountain versus the wines made in Walla Walla, like, holy crap, we have every kind of style of wine at your disposal. And so to say you don't like Washington wine means you might not like wine. And that's, you know, I can't help you there. <laughs> do, you, do you feel like there is a potential grape variety? Because I mean, we grow like more than 70 and that's sometimes a blessing and a curse. Do you feel like there may be a variety for Washington that could be like that New Zealand soft block, for example? I say all the time that the most exciting grape out of Washington is Syrah, but Syrah is like the is slowly seeming to become the Riesling of wines, which is, it's the wine we love, but nobody asked for. Um, 
And so I think that the the strength of Washington is its variety. It's total and and absolute. When you look at the map of France, and if you start in Champagne and go all the way down and do a huge loop through Bordeaux and up through the Loire, you run into every single kind of wine. And that's that's kind of how you learn wine is learn France. And so you can kind of do the same thing with Washington is you can go to the cooler parts of Washington and taste one of the best sparkling wines made in America from Analemma, or you could have some great Pinot Noir, uh, or you can have the best lean Chardonnay experience from Celilo Vineyard or some Gewürztraminer made by Dowsett that's like as beautiful as anything made in Alsace. And so, and then you can move over to Red Mountain. You can understand that those grapes are being bombarded by that fine Red Mountain dust, uh, ostensibly sandblasting them. So they have to have thicker skins to survive. And then you can understand that tannin and that structure. And you're like, oh, I know tannin and structure because I study Bordeaux and blah, blah, blah. So you can do the same thing with Washington where you're basically going, oh, this Syrah smells like Cornas. It smells like a bunch of olives and potpourri and bacon and teriyaki and holy crap, this is Washington. So I, I think that that it's so easy for some places like New Zealand or Oregon saying Pinot Noir is our thing. But in Washington, we have it all. And the, it's it's hard to put that into a bumper sticker and sell wine. And it takes a lot more education for the, the consumer to understand that it's a desert out there and that there's every kind of wine happening. I just got done with the, the great Northwest Invitational and there were some Chenin Blancs that blew my mind. And some were, some taste like Savinaire, some taste like Vouvray. And there's Cabernet Franc, some taste like Chinon, some taste more floral like Anjou. So like, I'm shocked often when people poo-poo an entire state saying, I don't like their kinds of wines. Well, it's because you just didn't get the right one yet. Or the, or the kind of wine that ended up in your market is, is not what we're selling here, which is uh, we're selling stuff that is made by the person that lives in the vineyard or the person that moved here and it makes one wine. It's a Syrah from the Boucher Vineyard and it's gorgeous. What was the question again? <laughs> No, I don't. I don't think Washington will ever have the grape to hang her hat on. But I think that's better. Yeah, that's way better. And if you think about what we like to drink throughout our life cycle of wine appreciation, when I think about, like, there was a Zin in this in this uh, tasting composition, and I was like, holy crap, this reminds me of all that stuff we drank in the late '90s. Like it was high octane, full of brambly fruits, had a little port like quality, but also had some green notes. And like, I was like, this is like. Sonoma Zinfandel from 1998. And so, yeah, we have all of it here. And you can't say that about most wine regions on the planet. I think we win for our diversity. And we're still getting started. There's certain grapes that have been planted in the last 10 years that haven't yet become mature vines throwing mature fruit. Yeah, they throw simple, delicious things. All right, quick story. This might not end up in the podcast, but it's a fun story because it, it goes to show two things, which is never have negative opinions because you don't never know who you're talking to, but also that things change so drastic. So go back to like 2002, Wild Ginger. I'm at table, table 11. It's this booth, six people. I'm walking around on a little walkie talkie. Uh, table 12 wants to talk about Washington Syrah. So I'm like, okay, Washington Syrah. Ugh. So at the time, there were so few Washington Syrahs that weren't being 
thrown an oak for 36 months. I think we had two on the list, Red Willow Vineyard from Columbia and Kiona, I think, and maybe one other. And so I go to this table and I say to these three guys, or sorry, the six guys, they're like, they're like, well, we don't see a lot of Washington Syrah on your list. I'm like, well, you know, because Washington Syrah right now is like, and so I start saying some not pleasant things about Washington Syrah. And I feel the table get a little icy. And I'm like, oh, shit. So I start the backpedal. I'm like trying to like massage back to like being positive. And I was like, you know, but actually yeah. now that I think of it lately, I've been tasting more Washington Syrahs that have been really impressive. You know, we, we don't have them in the restaurant yet, but like, I, I think that, and this guy interrupts me and says, name them. And so I start spouting off every Washington Syrah wow. I could think of, but you know what I didn't say? I didn't say Dunham. I didn't say K. I didn't say Cayuse. And the guy sitting at the table, <laughs> Eric Dunham, sitting next to Christoph Barron, sitting next to, to Charles Smith. And oh my God, so embarrassing. Fast forward again, like three years. We're opening up the triple door. Charles Smith is in the building and he wants to take a tour of the, of the new, new music venue. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm sure he still hates me. So I, but I go to the front desk. I'm like, sure, follow me. So we go into the, the service elevator and it's a very slow elevator, but that day it was extra slow. So I'm stuck in an elevator with, with Charles Smith after saying disparaging things about Washington Syrah. And he like hits me in the shoulder and he puts his finger at me. He's like, hey, and I thought he was going to like punch me. He's like, does that sommelier still work here? And I'm like, huh? You know, the sommelier doesn't like Syrah. And I'm like, Oh, oh, you mean Gene? Oh, yeah, Gene moved back to Wisconsin. Yeah, I know. He doesn't like Washington Syrah. What a, what a nutbag. <laughs> the difference was when I when I was tableside saying I hated Washington Syrah, I had like the Kenny G hair. And uh, yeah. at that point, I'd had it <laughs> cut short. So I no longer was easily recognizable. Man, that's so, an awesome story. I think I you know. nailed it, man. Thank you so much. I mean, just to see your passion right now for Washington and like all you've done for the last 20, 30 years, like, you know, how many people you've talked to at the tables and staff members and winemakers and like what all the features you've done for the industry and all of your work, like, thank you so much. Well, you know, here's the thing. I think that the people that deserve credit in the wine industry are the people that farm it and the people that make it. The people that pull the corks somehow get credit for pulling the corks. And if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have a job. Yes. Yeah. Well, today is the day that you get the spotlight all right, on you and, and all of your work. And like, we're so appreciative of that. Thank you, Chris. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay healthy. This has been Somlight, and we look forward to seeing you with some of our other favorite wine pros from around the country real soon. Thank you so much, Chris. Cue the music. 